Greetings and salutations. This is Kevin DeYoung, and you are listening to Life and Books and Everything. This is a special summer episode, and it's me flying solo for uh, what I think will be a little bit more of an abbreviated time together. We are brought to you, as always, by Crossway. Grateful for their partnership in sponsoring Life and Books and Everything, and want to come in to you today the revised and updated version of John Piper's book, The Supremacy of God in Preaching, which is being uh, released soon by Crossway. Definitely, and I'm I'm eager to see the revised, expanded version, but certainly the the older version is definitely top five of my uh, most uh, best preaching books that I've read. And so I'm really looking forward to this new one. So do check out John Piper with a, a glowing blurb from Sinclair Ferguson, calling it one of the few must read books when it comes to preaching. So, uh, I'd like us to think a bit. And as we are coming to the 4th of July holiday here in America, and I know we have people listening from outside of the United States, And hopefully there may be something still beneficial as you listen to me talk about a couple of books and do some rumination on the meaning of America. That's what I want to talk about, the meaning of America. It seems to me that to a large degree, many of the most contentious debates in our society at the moment have to do with history. Now, we may not know that we're debating history, but we are. They have to do with the story that we tell ourselves, the story that we tell our children, the story that we pass on in our schools. What is the story of America? And just to put it in very uh, extreme terms, perhaps the received story for many, many years was a story of great triumph moving from strength to strength and perhaps a, a few unfortunate blemishes here and there. And, uh, but we, we did away with slavery uh, with the Civil War and Martin Luther King Jr. and the Civil Rights Movement did away with the remaining uh, oppression towards African Americans. And there's some, the Trail of Tears and Native Americans is not a glowing mark, but for the most part, a story of heroes, a story of virtue, a story of liberty, of freedom from tyranny, and maybe depending upon your upbringing, even a great story of God's providence, maybe God's covenanted people, uh, American exceptionalism. So a story that we should be proud of as Americans, and one that is filled with all sorts of heroes and virtues and ingenuity and something speaking to the great American character. Don't tread on me. And if there are bad guys, because almost every story needs bad guys and good guys, the bad guys are are outside of ourselves. The bad guys are King George and, and the British. And then we come to, to like the British and we watch Downton Abbey and we follow the royals too much. Hey, didn't we have a revolution to, to not pay attention to what the royals do? But, uh, you know, the British, that's why for a long time, all the bad guys in movies, if they were sort of highfalutin bad guys, they had British accents. They speak of uh, imperial authority. 
And then maybe, depending on how you learn the Civil War, maybe the, the Southerners defending slavery, some in the South learn that the North were the bad guys. But for the most part, it's people outside of here, uh, the British. And then you fight in two world wars and you fight the, the Nazis and you fight fascism. So we have stories of heroism here and fighting perhaps different periods of ignorance and some benighted views and people on our own shores, but there's much to celebrate. That, that's, that's one version of America. Another version on the other polarity is to tell a story largely, almost entirely of oppressors and oppressed and the villains, they are us, or they're at least uh, mostly white males. And the story of America is the story of great atrocity, the story of great tyranny from our own people and mistreating those who uh, were not male, mistreating those who were not white, and a whole litany of crimes and atrocities against humanity. And there are, would be evidence for this telling of the story from Jim Crow and slavery and the Trail of Tears and the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. And that version of America is a version that we ought not to be proud of. But in a twist, and Shelby Steele writes about this in several of his books, there, there was a twist in the 1960s and 70s and, and moving on that in order to disassociate, that if you disassociate yourself with that older American story, it did win you a certain hearing. There, there, was a, there was a virtue in itself in decrying all of the vices of America. Now, th that's putting it very crudely, those two stories of America, uh, the story of America that is largely a story of triumph with notable points of evil scattered throughout, but a story of great heroism and courage and freedom and the gift of liberty to the world, or a story that, yes, of course, there, there are good things, but a story that's been mainly one of the oppressors and the those in power wielding their power uh, at the expense of others. Of course, it's a long history, and there's lots that can be said, and so it's not hard to find evidence of either of those two narratives. All, all of that is just preface to say that so much of why there are often such viscerally strong reactions to some momentary cultural flashpoint is because really we're arguing about the meaning of our own history and what does it mean to be an American? And is there even such thing as being an American. And if you, you, you sort of think about if it's your own family history. So try to sympathize for a moment with, with both of those meta narratives I've sketched out. So uh, on the one hand, if, if you're talking about your family and anyone, if you're honest about your family, you know as well as anyone what the imperfections are. You know how dad got too angry and you know how mom uh, didn't do this very well and the kids weren't respectful. So you know your family's not perfect, but it is your family and you love your family and you're proud to be a part of your family. And so if people come along and they say, you know what your whole family story is about? It's about what rotten people you are. 
And it's about how you treated everyone else. And your your family story is really not about the noble things that you did. Um, it's not worth celebrating. In fact, the uh, the best thing we can do is tell people and apologize for your family. Well, you can see how that's going to elicit a strong negative response. And on the other hand, if someone says, well, look, all I've ever heard about is your family is so great and how your, your family, oh, we've heard all the famous stories and how your family brought the meals to the new neighbors and your family uh, got the, the, the neighbor's horse out of the ditch and your family built this town by the sweat of their brow. Well, what about the time that your family stole from the people on the other side of town? What about the time when, when your family lied? And you're not telling the real story about your family. And in fact, your family story is not actually my family story. And your family story uh, was at the expense of my own family's story. Well, then you can sympathize that to just want everyone to sing and celebrate. Uh, that family story seems not just strange and ill-fitting, but uh, distasteful. And so, uh, as Colin, Justin, and I have talked about before, they're not here to agree or disagree with me, but when it comes to these symbolic gestures, which are often so ambiguous, say kneeling during the national anthem, what, what, what is that? What does that sign mean? Well, we're, we're not just debating about kneeling or not. We're, we're talking about a, a whole way of viewing our history. And then you put in, well, what does that say about the military? So for some people, uh, it's a way of saying, we don't agree with the way the story of America has unfolded for all sorts of people. And for others to kneel there during the national anthem patriotic moment with the unfurling of the flag is to say, you don't respect this family story. And in fact, this story that is about noble sacrifice and this story that I can point to where my grandfather or my father or my great grandfather fought to preserve what's good and right and noble. So you can see, we're not just pulling in one or two cultural flashpoints, but a whole way of viewing our own identity and our own history as Americans. One of our informal slogans is e pluribus unum, out of many one, but more and more, it's not so certain that there is an unum. And as we'll see in just a moment, they're, they're, some would argue there never has been. So I wanna talk about two books. We won't spend a ton of time here, and then I'll finish with a few rambling thoughts. That's redundant when you're on a podcast. The first book, which just came out, is called After Nationalism, Being American uh, in an Age of Division by Samuel Goldman. Samuel Goldman uh, teaches political science and the executive director at the Loeb Institute for Religious Freedom at the George Washington University. So After Nationalism, Being American in an Age of Division. It's not a long book, it's uh, 125 pages before you get to the end notes. Uh, what does he mean by after nationalism? Well, he says, we live after nationalism in the sense that our public discourse is characterized by appeals to various and potentially incompatible conceptions of the nation. That's what he means 
after nationalism. We do not have a shared sense of national identity. What's helpful in this book, and we'll get to his prescription in a moment, but there is a helpful uh, heuristic device or pedagogical device, you might say. Now, he says there have been throughout American history, there, there have been basically three ways of understanding who we are and what it means to be an American. And they all can be described with a C word. So there's covenant, crucible, and creed. And what's really good in a, in a short book like this, that will stick with you. And of course, lots of scholars can say, well, that's not nuanced enough, but yeah, it's going to stick with you. And it's helpful to think these three things. So he said, one way of viewing American identity has been covenant. They said, this was uh, largely the Puritans of New England understood themselves to be in a unique relationship in a covenant with God, that the American people have an errand into the wilderness. Now you may say, well, that's just the really conservative Puritans, but it, it wasn't just that. It, it morphed into uh, certain strands of 19th, 20th century progressivism, uh, old mainline liberalism, uh, any sort of idea of a people who have a special mission from God, and perhaps earlier it's to be a city on a hill, but others it might be to be a civilizing influence or to rid the country of alcohol. There is this covenant idea. That's what it means to be an American. And Goldman says, well, that has very little purchase power today. Not very many people, even among Christians, though it just read a, a book not, that came out recently re-exploring this idea of covenant. And if you think of covenant just most broadly as a people accountable to God, that's certainly true. But not many people are trying to make that explicit religious case. So he says, uh, it requires a high degree of theological consensus. That's a challenge. And it also is a characteristic vision of a virtuous society which is very limiting when you become an increasingly diverse people. So he says this covenant idea has often been most resonant with, uh, with WASPs, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, and with uh, Yankees up in New England or in the upper Midwest. But he does say that there, there are certain parts of it that are worth considering, it provided a well-ordered nation, revolved around shared prosperity. It, it, it sketched out a sense of religious guidance for the nation. It put together uh, a disparate group of people, although they weren't very disparate from our vantage point, with a sort of singularity of purpose. So that's one view, is a covenant. This is a crucible. Well, think of a crucible uh, as a melting pot. That's really what he means, but C word, crucible, things being crushed and pounded together. So that's another view of America. This great tapestry, uh, and it was a melting pot, but then melting pots seem like, well, you lose your own identity as you're melted down into something else. So maybe a salad bowl, you still retain your own identity, or maybe a patchwork quilt. So there's different kind of metaphors, but he says that in this idea of a crucible, there's something about, uh, you know, we're a nation of immigrants, we all come from different places, but we come together 
and we experience life as Americans, and we come together maybe as an orchestra, and each of us were stronger for playing our own part in sort of a celebration of diversity. Now, you might say, well, that has some more purchase power. People today like multiculturalism, like diversity. And yet, if we look at this throughout history, uh, Goldman argues it's been a broken crucible because it wasn't just African-Americans or Native Americans who weren't really uh, here and being brought in as a, a kind of melting pot or uh, playing a part in the symphony. But throughout history, it's other sort of Europeans, people that now just get lumped together as white, but when it was Italians or Poles or Irish or even at different times Germans and later in the 20th century Asians. So it's been a pretty patchy record. And you can't just say, well, those darn conservatives. No, many times it was it was progressive ideas. Uh, sometimes it was different labor leaders who wanted to keep out people from other parts of the world, maybe as cheaper labor force or held discriminatory views toward them. So you have this idea of a crucible, which he said, again, there's, there's something to it of coming from many different places. And yet he said, it's never really had a sterling record. Uh, the next group thrown into the crucible has always been uh, a painful one. And then finally, creed. And what he means by the creed is what we might find in the, the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. And these are the ideals worth fighting for. Uh, we, the people, in order to form a more perfect union. And we hold these truths to be self-evident. And over time, certain other documents are added to the creed. The, the, the Gettysburg Address, uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech, we have a dream that to be American is to believe in this creed of equality, this kind of civic nationalism, this aspiration to be whoever you can be, to live a life of freedom. He says, again, for many, many years, this was taken for granted. And yet he says, we have often fought wars over these undeclared creedal principles, sometimes for good reason. And other times he says, for less noble reasons. This creed, he argues, is increasingly not enough to hold us together, especially when some would argue that those founding documents were, uh, were written with uh, duplicity. You can argue about that. I actually think they were written by men who believed in those ideals, but were very flawed in holding to those ideals. So one of his critiques of all three of these views, and this is his fourth chapter, he calls memory, nostalgia, and narrative, that we tend to look into the past with very rosy-eyed. And that's true for most of us. Now, we'll look into other people's past, but whatever we consider to be our past. So if our, our, our family story is America, or if you think, well, your, your family story is, is the civil rights movement, or your family story is Calvin in Geneva, or your family story is the period, whatever you identify, kind of those are my people. Well, you know, it's not that hard. It doesn't cost you anything 
you know, you may be an American, but if you're real, your your more important identity is as a Scottish Presbyterian, then, eh, yeah, it doesn't cost you that much to point out other people's problems and other people's families. But whatever your family identity is, it becomes very painful and difficult, which is why we resort to nostalgia. We want things to look good. We want to, we have this kind of homesickness for the past as we imagine that it must have been. So what does he offer as a way forward? I I found those three C's to be very helpful. It can stick with you. Covenant, crucible, creed, just three different ways. I don't think they have to be mutually contradictory, but three different ways of viewing what it means to be an American. When it gets to the the way forward, he argues that we ought to be a community of communities, a variety of overlapping, sometimes contending groups that reflect and cultivate different conceptions of identity, responsibility, and purpose. In other words, he, he argues for a kind but aggressive pluralism. Let's have an open public square And he says, look, we just have to be realistic. We have over 300 million people. We don't have a shared identity. We have many identities. We have many different communities. And so if you have a class-based organization, if you have associational freedom, if religious community, uh, various political institutions, let those institutions and those communities be strengthened. Let them have as much freedom as possible and let them contend vigorously for their views of, of identity. And as we do that, then with our own unwieldy diversity, perhaps we can find a way. And perhaps he says that's really what America is about, is finding a way in the midst of all of our competing constituencies to still somehow do life together, which seems to me uh, falling back a little bit on the crucible idea. So. Uh, he's certainly on to something. We do have to face the country that we live in, not the one that we wish we did. And he's certainly true. There are, we can all see this, there are many, many competing ideologies, identities, tribal factions. We are a community of communities. And I do appreciate his encouragement that we should let those communities have as much uh, autonomy and freedom and strength as they can. And so find your identity as a reformed Christian in America and contend for that with others and why that identity matters is important. So there's something to that. And yet I, I couldn't help but finish the book as, as interesting and helpful as it was at parts. feel like, is, is that enough? Uh, it, is there more? Must there be more? Is it really possible in the long run, and maybe he would just say the long run is coming to an end, is it really possible to have, even with 300 million people, you need, don't you need some group identity? Is it possible to have, to say that being American means, really, it means that we all agree to compete with each other on what it means to be American? Don't we need something of a shared story? something of a shared identity? Uh, Aren't aren't we facing some really dystopian events ahead if we have nothing of a shared history? And so that leads me to the second book, 
Land of Hope, an invitation to the great American story by Wilfred McClay. It may sound like this is very, that he and Goldman would disagree entirely. I don't know they they would. Goldman does quote from McClay a couple of times in his smaller book, but this book by Wilfred McClay came out a year or two ago. It's uh, it's a, a American history textbook, probably for college freshmen, high school students. It's a big, thick, heavy book, uh, you know, 400 plus big pages, but it reads really well. And I've read other things that McClay has written. He is a professor at University of Oklahoma, and he tells this story of America. And you can just, you can, you can hear in the title sort of where he's going. Land of hope, an invitation to the great American story. So some people right away would say, ah, no, how can you even, what an audacious title. But what I really appreciate about McClay's book here is he says at the outset, and he says all throughout the book, look, we need to be honest with our own failures as a country. We need to tell the truth about our own story. And so there are many points in which he may celebrate certain individuals. I think of his chapter on World War II, where he says, yes, admit things we did wrong, strategical errors, things that were uh, racist at home. And yet he does say, uh, on the whole, it was a, an event of great self-sacrifice by millions of people in the United States for ends that were not immediately uh, seen for their own sakes, but were for the sake of, of others. So there's many instances like that where he is willing to say, look, here is something very good about America, about the American character. And yet he points out the, the list of abuses, whether it's the way that the U.S. government treated Native Americans at various points, and of course, slavery and Jim Crow and Look, the, the, those aren't the only two ways to sin. Those aren't, those aren't the only ways that a national people can sin. That's what we tend to think of. The nation sin by uh, racism and by social injustice. Well, there's lots of other ways too. But what, what I so appreciate about the book is he tries to really do both, not one or the other. And he tells a story. It's, it's, it's well-written. It's almost... Uh, elegant prose at times. I'm sure some people would say it's too much of a traditional textbook. It focuses on uh, leading men and focuses on presidents and military generals and major events. And yet I, I think the rather straightforward way of telling the story is a, a strength rather than a weakness and tries to draw in others who may not fit in the the Mount Rushmore pantheon of heroes and tries to tell all of that as part of the American story. I just want to read what he says in his epilogue, which is really a, a beautiful closing to the book where he discusses what it means to talk about American patriotism and being American. And I think he's right that we must have some national identity. There must be some story that we tell 
that we more or less agree on. We may not agree on all the particulars. We may not agree uh, what's the major key and the minor key, but there must be some story that we tell about ourselves. He says, this book is offered as a contribution to the making of American citizens. As such, it is a patriotic endeavor as well as a scholarly one, and it never loses sight of what there is to celebrate and cherish in the American achievement. That doesn't mean it is an uncritical celebration. The two things, celebration and criticism, are not necessarily enemies. He says a little bit later, we should not take these aspects of our country for granted. He's talking about the freedoms that we enjoy in our form of government and our constitution and the ways in which we are open to self-criticism. He said we should not take these aspects for granted. They have not been the condition of most human associations throughout most of human history. They do not automatically perpetuate themselves. And that is really important. It is very easy to think this is just the default way in uh, if only we could be so much better, because this is sort of default to have a Bill of Rights, to have a Constitution, to have elective representative, to have a right to trial by jury of your peers, to have a system of appeals, to be innocent until proven guilty. This is just sort of the way things are. When you look at history, no, this is a very unique arrangement. Just because it's become common in the last 250 years doesn't mean it has been at all common in the history of the world. And so we tend to take for granted all the things that are good and we only see the things that are broken or don't seem to be working or haven't worked for everyone like they should have. One of the questions we must always ask is compared to what? Okay, you want this would be better, okay. Um, or what we have rather is 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 broken and here's okay compared to what so where's the utopia where is the heaven on earth it's certainly not in america but you always have to say compared to what so i appreciate the way that he tries to argue that this country is a land of hope and yet we are honest about our own failings so I'll just go to the last page he says this conversation, to be a real and honest one, must include the good, the bad, and the ugly. The ways we have failed and fallen short, not merely what is pleasing to our national self-esteem, but by the same token, the great story, the thread that we share, should not be lost in a blizzard of details or a hailstorm of rebukes. This is and remains a land of hope, a land to which much of the rest of the world longs to come. Oh, it'd be another episode to try to defend that conclusion, but I... I confess that I resonate with it. So let me just conclude with um, a few thoughts, thinking about this as Christians. Because as I've written before, uh, we, we need to be careful. We're talking about something as difficult as American history. You can fill in the blank with your own country, many of which are much older than America. Uh, we don't want to make a certain view of American history a, an unwritten requirement for communion, whether literal communion or just fellowship, in our churches. That's not a requirement. You must have a view of America. You must have the what we consider to be the right interpretation of American history, or you are not welcome in the body of Christ. That is adding to Scripture. So that's a caution. But at the same time, 
uh, we, speaking for myself and my church, we are in America. We live in America. And we can't help but have to come to some conclusions and, and talk about these things. And so how do we do so? And how do we think through these issues in a way that might be helpful? Here are uh, six quick thoughts. Number one, let's look at our history and add without always subtracting. What I mean is we should be eager to, to add great stories from So I'm, I'm a white man. And if for much of American history, the contributions from non-white men have been neglected, then let's, let's add. Uh, now, I know sometimes it is a zero-sum game. You have a textbook. It only can be so many pages long. You can't put in everything. And you have to make those choices. But as we just have a conversation, as we just talk, as we just learn and celebrate, let's continue to learn and to, to add to those stories and, uh, you know, jazz um, that folk music, uh, rock and roll music coming out of the fusion of African-American experience and, and other rivulets flowing. This is part of what it means to be America. A, a lot of us think our own experience. We have, that's real America. Real America is the prairies, the countryside. A real America is New York City. Well, there's a lot of real Americas. And we can learn more and we can add without always without having to subtract or making everything a zero-sum conversation. To add in the, the triumphs and the experiences of minorities, of, of, of immigrants, you can add them without always and therefore this is why these bad guys are even worse than we ever thought. So add without always subtracting. Two, let's be committed, as whether we're talking about academic historians or just armchair historians. I said this before. Let's be committed to do neither hagiography nor hamartiography. Hagiography, hagios saints, that's one version of history. We just look at the we just present everyone as saints and George Washington never told a lie and uh, wouldn't chop down the cherry tree and the founding fathers were a noble pantheon of enlightened men and it's all hagiography. But on the other hand, people see that and, we don't like, and, and they, they go to hamartiography. All we can see are flaws. All we can talk about are people's inconsistencies. All we can talk about, we only see, instead of looking at people warts and all, we look at people only warts, nothing else. We can do nothing else but talk about their warts. And if we're honest, oftentimes uh, people trade one hagiography for another. I mean, this could happen if, if you were Catholic and you became Protestant, or if you were you know, Baptist and became Anglican. You know, you or you grew up with one view of America and then you came to see, oh, that's very bad. And then you, you celebrate the African-American experience in America and you trade one hagiography for another. And you end up not really doing justice to either. Uh, so our goal as reasonable people doing history, and this is my third point is, and this is quoting a famous 
wrote from Quentin Skinner and that school of historiography and intellectual history in particular, uh, seeing things their way. As a historian, as people even dabbling in history, we want to try to see things their way. Now, that doesn't mean we have to agree. That doesn't mean at the end of the day we can't say, well, I, I tried to understand where they were coming from, and you know what? It was wrong. It was hypocritical. Here's what we learned from it. But I do think this is not just good history, but this is part of what it means to do history as Christians. We want to love our neighbors as ourselves, even our dead neighbors, especially those who, who are fellow believers. Now, we don't always know. and Some clearly weren't. But I hope when I get to heaven, anybody that I've written about historically, I hope if I saw them, they, they would say, I think you were really doing the best you could to try to understand who I am, who I was. We owe that. And, and so often, people who, just because you have a PhD in history doesn't mean you really have an interest in doing this. And it, it could be history about our founding fathers, or it could be history about somebody who's still alive today, or history that took place in the 1980s and 1990s. And there's no effort to really try to see things their way. No effort to try to say, well, what was the totality of their vision? Or what, what were they really about? Or let's put this quotation in context, or let's try to understand this one errant statement or this one blind spot in the broader scope of everything they did and said. No, we just can find the one thing and ding them for it and move on. That is not doing history as Christians ought to do history, which is to love our neighbors as ourselves. Wouldn't you want someone to do history on your life someday? Uh, if you're properly self-reflective and humble, you would say, well, no, don't, don't present me as uh, walking on sunshine and moving from triumph to triumph. I was a sinner. But do try to be fair and try to be honest. And don't just cherry pick the worst things you can about me. So let's try to see things their way. Tell the truth. Love our neighbors. Here's number four. Let's do history with a proper anthropology and Christology. What I mean by that is a proper anthropology tells us that there is good and bad in each of us. Now, that doesn't mean we just have to be relativists and say, well, everyone's just some good, some bad. No, there, there are people in the history of the world that have had a lot more good and a lot more bad. And there, you know, there's somebody like Winston Churchill who has a long list, and I'm speaking outside of America, obviously, a long list of faults. He was, he was vain. He was ambitious. He made tactical errors. He could be impossible to work with. And yet... His, his strengths and his genius and what he accomplished and what he prevented in the world, uh, though he wasn't a Christian, ought to overshadow that uh, in a spiritual sense, but looking historically. So uh, it, it doesn't mean we just say everyone's, you know, 50% good, 50% bad. But as I say, with a proper anthropology, we know people are made in the image of God. They're capable of great things and they're capable of great evil. And every single person has been a sinner. Every single person has had clay feet. So that's a proper anthropology and then a, a proper Christology. So there's good and bad in each of us, and there's only one final hero. Now, we're going to have heroes, and it's not wrong to have heroes. We see in the New Testament, they look back at those men and women of great faith. You, you have to have heroes. We have permission in the Bible to have heroes besides Jesus, as long as we understand the only final hero, the only one who gets it all right, is Jesus. So if we find, if, if the hero is MLK or Abraham Lincoln or George Washington or Frederick Douglass or Thomas Jefferson 
or John Witherspoon, and you find something about that hero, which shows him to be a sinner, and you find yourself absolutely furious with rage, and that's a sign it probably wasn't just a hero, it was an idol. That's what we feel like when our, our gods, our goddesses are put to death. So let's have a proper anthropology, a proper Christology. Number five, I'm almost done. Let's celebrate virtue where we find it and lament and condemn vice where we find it. So what I mean by that is when there are heroic actions of, of great courage, of bravery, of, of genius, of ingenuity, let's celebrate it. And let's, let's celebrate the virtue and let's lament the vice rather than celebrate the color, first of all, or lament the color, first of all. So I, I, I want to present history in such a way that whether the people in, in history looked sort of like I do or not, had Dutch last names or not, if there's vice, even if their last name was a de Young, want to be able to say, uh, I tried to understand that and it was wrong and that's lamentable. And where there's virtue, when there's true nobility of character and sacrifice and courage and standing up for the good and the true and the beautiful, uh, then let's celebrate it. So again, let, let's make the virtue and the vice ring out, not that sort of blood, that sort of skin, that sort of person, because that way of telling history, it feels good for a moment and it will, it will inevitably make things worse, not better. Because as soon as you start telling that way, instead of aspiring, because you see, I can aspire to be more courageous then I can aspire to noble things. And by God's grace, I can grow into them. I can't aspire to be a different race, a different ethnicity. So if you lock people into a virtue or you lock, or lock them into a vice and lock them out of a virtue, pretty soon they're going to say, oh, oh, well, that's how you play the game? Well, let me tell you what my tribe, what my people are really like. Well, this isn't to say that, that any sort of uh, ethnic identity or celebration is wrong. Clearly it's not. Celebrate African-American heritage. Uh, you know, my, my family was always proud to be Dutch and lots of places across the country have tulip time festivals and celebrate Dutch heritage. So you don't have to leave those things behind, but shouldn't lock people in to, to, to be Dutch is truly to be virtuous or to be Dutch is truly to be one of the bad guys instead of the good guys. That's not the way to, to accurately tell history. And it's not the way in the end that's really going to be beneficial to people or to our country. And then finally, uh, should be obvious, but we recall that we're dual citizens. That means our earthly citizenship is not irrelevant. Uh, I am an American. I think it's good to be proud to be an American. I hope if you're listening, you're, you're proud from some other place. You're proud to be Brazilian or Mexican or Canadian or uh, Scotsman. Uh, I'm proud to be an American and I will enter into heaven as an American. And yet that earthly citizenship must, must pale so much in comparison 
to my heavenly citizenship. And if I find that my, my, so here's what I say. If I find that I can much more easily connect with my earthly citizenship. And in fact, that's my great passion, greater than to advance the interests of my heavenly citizenship. And I find much more in common with those people who share that than my heavenly citizenship, then something's wrong. The church is, is the outpost, is an embassy of that heavenly kingdom. So the church is to advance the interests of a king from another land, abiding by the, that king's rules to advance his interests in this foreign land. So just as you, you know, if you're an American embassy in London, you say, well, I, I want to be respectful as, as much as I can and uh, you know, take in the sights and, and be happy here to live in London and understand what Londoners are like. But if I'm true as an American ambassador, I'm here to advance the interests of my home country. I'm visiting here, it's a nice place to visit, and I learned to love some things. But this is not what I'm ultimately about. And it's, and it's that way with our dual citizenship. So, my fellow Americans, I hope you have a great 4th of July, a great Independence Day. Uh, my, my British friends, you can insert whatever joke you want to now about us unruly Americans. Uh, it, it's too late to apologize. You can go Google the video and, and watch it. Uh, so we have things to be proud of as Americans. And I think it's quite right that we would celebrate the independence of our country as people all around the world do. And as we keep it in proper focus with our dual citizenship, I think a proper kind of patriotism in its place can be healthy. And as we look together and think together about our own history and what it means to be an American, and of course, uh, we're, we're not going to agree on it. That's established. But if we can show as Christians a way to love one another, to speak the truth, not just to each other, but about one another, and perhaps to bend the ear to listen, and maybe there is just something we can recover about our shared history and identity. Uh, as Americans, second, and as Christians, first. Thanks for listening. Have a great day holiday and until next time glorify god enjoy him forever and read a good book